1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by
2: Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
2: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and stalking that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Please note, the subjects of this episode are referred to by pseudonyms to protect the identities of the parties involved, including Kate Brennan and Paul. Paul shifted in the hard chair. He kept his face blank as detectives pestered him with questions about his ex, Kate Brennan. But he couldn't help himself from tapping his foot nervously or hide the tenseness in his shoulders. Apparently, Kate had told the police he was harassing her. He couldn't believe she had the nerve to file a complaint. The prospect gave him a twinge of pleasure. It meant she was afraid of him. He was getting to her, but mostly he felt angry furious even if she thought the police could scare him off she was wrong paul got himself under control and played dumb he answered all their questions he told them he didn't love kate he had never loved her she was nothing to him she obviously couldn't bear to accept that fact she was trying to ruin him to punish him for not taking her back no matter what the detectives asked paul found a way to make it all kate's fault he said it over and over kate brennan was unstable hi i'm Laney hobbs and this is crimes a passion a Parcast original The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. Last week, we discussed the toxic codependent relationship between a 43-year-old writer who used the pseudonym Kate Brennan and the man she called Paul. Kate thought Paul was charming and worldly when they first met, but over the course of their relationship, she discovered that he had a sex addiction and a pattern of controlling behavior. Eventually, after three years of trying and failing to make it work, she decided to break up with him. This week, we'll talk about Kate's life after Paul. They rarely saw each other after Kate left, but she soon realized Paul had no intention of letting her move on. He stalked her for years making sure she'd never forget him. When Kate Brennan moved out of Paul's house in June of 1994, she knew that he wouldn't accept the breakup easily. She tried to leave him before, and each time he'd either call her repeatedly or show up at her apartment in person. He begged her to give him another chance and refused to take no for an answer. He always convinced her to come back to him. This time, Kate promised herself that she would resist his pleas, but Paul couldn't let her go. When she didn't answer his calls, he left pleading messages on her answering machine. He drove past the house where she was staying over and over again. Sometimes he got out of the car and tried to talk to her through the front door. Kate refused to let him inside. She didn't want to give him any chance to manipulate her again. Eventually, she moved to her parents' house in another state to get away from him for a while, but Paul found her there too. Kate's mother initially felt sympathetic towards Paul. She had liked him and even questioned Kate's reasons for the breakup. But she quickly understood her daughter's position as she fielded Paul's relentless calls to their house. She finally told him that Kate wasn't ever going to answer. He had to stop. For Kate's part, she tried her best to ignore Paul's pleas. She wanted to move on. It wasn't easy, she really had loved him. She was now 44 years old. She'd invested years of her life in their relationship all that time, Paul had expertly played on her sympathies. He exploited his father's death and his abusive childhood to explain away his bad behavior. He always knew just what to say to make her believe things might get better. Even after all their problems, part of her still hoped he might change and become someone capable of being in a committed relationship. Before I continue with Kate's psychology, Please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. Physician and author Kristen Fuller has written about the difficulties of leaving a toxic relationship. She has said, There is no AA or NA for this. Changing is a process and not simply a decision people often return to a toxic relationship, sometimes because it is familiar and therefore comfortable. They know no other persona except their shattered selves. It can be difficult to commit to the decision to leave without help. Kate discussed these issues in therapy. She sometimes felt tempted to see Paul one last time. By then, her psychologist recognized Paul as a manipulator. He warned her against letting Paul back into her life. After a few weeks, Kate left her parents' home. She returned to the Midwestern city where she lived, found a house to rent, and moved in. But it wasn't long before she began receiving late-night phone calls from Paul. She didn't have caller ID, so it was hard to avoid speaking to him without ignoring the phone completely. Sometimes, Paul called to tell her that he was lying in bed staring at her photograph. That's how much he missed her. On other occasions, he'd remarked that he'd seen her that day while running errands or stopping by a coffee shop. Kate never saw him, but he always seemed to know exactly where to find her. Once he told her that he knew where she lived, he could see her whenever he wanted. Kate hung up on him. When he couldn't reach Kate directly, Paul tried to get her attention in other ways. He called her siblings to grill them about Kate. He seemed intent on reminding her that he could always reach her. No matter what she did, she could never truly cut him off completely. Kate was forced to contact her friends and family and warn them not to talk to Paul. But Paul was willing to go to any lengths to intrude on her life. Not long after moving, Kate noticed that she wasn't receiving her mail, even though she had requested it be forwarded from Paul's address to hers. When she called the post office, she was told that the forwarding request had been canceled. They claimed they had her signature on the cancellation form, even though Kate knew she had never signed it. The next time Paul called Kate, she asked him about it. He cackled into the receiver. If she wanted her mail, she could come to his place and get it then the next day kate came home to find her mail sitting on her dining room table paul had given it to kate's friend who had an emergency key to her place she assumed she was doing kate a favor by bringing the mail but paul was using kate's friends as pawns to frighten her she took her spare key back worried that paul might find a way to take it and make a copy She realized she couldn't trust anyone to hold on to it. Kate sat at her desk. She tried to focus on the book she was reading, but her eyes kept traveling to the phone. She was waiting for it to ring, waiting to hear his voice. It was maddening. She wanted to tell someone, to call the police, but it all sounded crazy and paranoid. Would anybody believe her word over Paul's? Even if they did believe her, they might just find his constant calls romantic. They wouldn't see it as harassment. They'd think Paul was just trying to win her back. Kate shuddered. She heard a noise outside and whirled around to face the window. She half expected to see someone staring at her, but she only saw an empty street. She took a deep breath, trying to calm down. She missed feeling normal, She missed feeling safe. She wondered if she'd ever feel that way again. Kate was unsettled by Paul's behavior, but she didn't yet believe that it rose to the level of stalking and she was afraid to seek help. Her doubts were warranted. Forensic psychiatrist Brooke Zietek had noted that law enforcement officers may not investigate reports of stalking. In an interview, she said, They're more understanding now than they used to be. But if you call the police and say, my ex-boyfriend is stalking me, they may not actually do anything about it. They'll say, call us if he comes on your property. According to a 2009 Department of Justice report on stalking victimization, when a victim made a report to the police, the perpetrator was arrested in just 8% of the cases. And in nearly 20% of the cases, authorities took no action at all. Perhaps sensing how difficult it would be to make a case against Paul, Kate tried to ignore him at first, but she grew increasingly frustrated. Soon after the mail incident, Paul called to tell her he had gotten into medical school. He seemed to expect her congratulations. Angry, Kate asked, do you think I still love you? Paul replied, I know you do. Kate told Paul to never call her again She said if he ever tried to approach her in public, she'd spit in his face. Then she hung up. This was the last conversation she and Paul ever had. He stopped trying to call her directly after that. But Paul was far from finished with Kate. When she left him, he told her that he would always be with her. He meant it. Coming up, Paul finds new and disturbing ways to intrude on Kate's life.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
1: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
2: Now, back to the story. In 1994... 44-year-old Kate Brennan broke up with Paul, her live boyfriend of nearly three years. She had put up with months of his manipulative behavior and infidelity while they were together. But after she ended the relationship, he became determined to make her regret it. He called her obsessively. He contacted her friends and family members, trying to get details about her whereabouts. He left incessant messages on her answering machine, telling her that he loved her and wanted her to come back. But Kate knew that Paul's actions had nothing to do with love. She became increasingly anxious about his invasive actions. She later wrote, He's breached all the boundaries of my life. Kate even stopped talking to mutual friends she shared with Paul, She couldn't trust them not to pass along information about her to him. When she did run into someone he knew, many of them warned her how angry Paul was. They claimed he hated that she'd left him. He always wanted to be the one to end the relationship, to have the control. He was furious that the power had been taken from him. According to Colorado State University's Women and Gender Advocacy Center, These kinds of anger issues frequently motivate obsessive stalkers. The center's website states that these stalkers exhibit a variety of characteristics, including desire for extreme control, obsessive behavior, vengeful attitudes, an inability to handle rejection, and an assumption of little or no responsibility for their actions. The website also states, Stalkers turned to threats and violence as a means of reestablishing control of the victim. Kate was worried, but she clung to the hope that Paul would eventually get sick of pursuing her. She was sure that he couldn't go on forever. When she heard that he was seeing someone else, Kate hoped the new relationship would distract him from her. She was wrong. Paul's aunt, Kate's friend and former neighbor, told her that Paul had sold his house. He and his new girlfriend had gotten an apartment just a few minutes from Kate's home. The prospect terrified Kate. She couldn't feel safe even in her own neighborhood knowing that she might run into Paul anywhere. All she wanted was her privacy back. Paul shattered everything that gave her any kind of security. Around that time, Kate decided to take a trip to Acadia National Park in Maine. She was vacationing with her brother and his wife, but spent some time hiking alone in the woods. One day, as she walked, Kate noticed a strange man on the trail behind her. The stranger matched her pace, slowing when she slowed, stopping when she stopped. When Kate stopped to sit on a rock and rest, the man finally spoke to her. He told her that he'd been watching her and that he knew she was alone. He asked if he could sit with her. Kate warned the man to stay away, threatening to scream for a park ranger. At that, the stranger abruptly turned around and walked away. Kate wondered whether Paul had sent him. If he had, perhaps he only wanted to scare her. But there was always a chance that Paul had deadlier intentions She thought about how easy it would have been for the man to stage an accident while she was alone in the woods. She was deeply shaken, but she tried her best to forget about the incident and Paul. She couldn't allow him to terrorize her. It was what he wanted. She refused to give him the satisfaction. But there was no line Paul wouldn't cross. About a year after the breakup, Kate was plagued by strange and unsettling events. They were often small, not necessarily threatening on their own. Kate couldn't be sure whether Paul was behind them or not. One day, she started to make a call, but she didn't hear the dial tone. She realized somebody was already on the phone. Kate spoke to the receiver, asking if anyone else was there. A man answered, saying their phone lines must have gotten crossed. Kate hung up and called the phone company to fix the issue. They agreed to send over a technician, but he never showed up for the appointment. That afternoon, Kate spotted the phone company truck waiting down the street with the technician sitting inside. She hurried outside and asked him if he was there to repair her line, but he refused to answer. Instead, he stayed silent, only smiling at her through the window. Kate didn't want to get into an argument with a technician, but privately she believed Paul must have paid the man to wait outside her house, refusing to come inside and fix the problem. When she tried calling the phone company again to report the incident, the customer service representative told her that they had no record of her account. They called it a computer error. Kate wasn't so sure. She remembered Paul bragging about his friendship with an expert computer hacker. This hacker had been able to trace a license plate for them before. Perhaps he could also tamper with her phone account. Unfortunately, Kate had no proof that Paul was behind her troubles. Without evidence, there was nothing she could do. She felt powerless. On another occasion, she came home to find her front door left open. She knew she had locked it before leaving. Kate cautiously searched the house, terrified she might find an intruder inside. Instead, she discovered that a bar of soap had moved from the bathroom to the kitchen counter. A book from her desk had been moved to another counter. A teaspoon from a kitchen drawer was placed on her bed. It was infuriating. Nothing was missing or stolen. The sole purpose of the break-in was to unsettle Kate, to make her feel off balance. She wrote of the home invasion, I hardly speak of it, only to a few close friends, but it changed my life. I feel violated and vulnerable, but mostly I'm angry at the thought of how much pleasure Paul must get from gutting and rearranging my life. Retired police lieutenant and stalking consultant, Mark Wynne said this behavior is not unusual. He explained, The offender wants the victim to know, I'm here and I can get to you. Over the next few months, incidents like this happened several more times. Kate tried to change the locks, but somehow it didn't stop Paul. Kate later suspected that he may have been paying her landlady to let him or one of his hired men inside the home. She later wrote, the scope of Paul's harassment amazes me. Fear began to dominate her life. Kate lay in bed, slowly coming out of a deep sleep. She squinted at the bright morning light streaming through her window. It dawned on her that something felt off. She had slept too long. She glanced at her alarm clock, only to find its face blank. The power was out. She jumped out of bed, suddenly wide awake. Her first fear was that somebody was in the house with her. Somebody had cut her power line and was hiding, preparing to attack her. Kate looked around the room for something heavy, something she might be able to use as a weapon. She made a mental note. Perhaps she should start sleeping with a knife under her pillow. She crept from room to room looking for the intruder, her heart pounding in her chest. But she found nothing. No one else was in the house. Was it nothing? Was it just a coincidence that she lost power? Or was it one of Paul's games? How could she be sure? How could she be sure of anything anymore? Paul's influence didn't just affect Kate at home. It encroached on her professional life as well. At one point, a friend recommended her for a publishing position at a nonprofit press. She accepted the job, but once she started work, she faced constant criticism from the organization's co-founder. She was frustrated by the conflict, but didn't think anything of it until months later, when she discovered that the woman was close friends with Paul's new girlfriend. Kate wondered if Paul had set up the whole thing. Had he arranged to have her hired just so he could torment her through her boss? Around the same time, she also took a job teaching part-time at a local university. Soon after classes started, the head of the English department took her aside to share her concerns. A man had been calling the school asking about Kate's schedule. He wanted to sign up for one of her classes. He claimed he'd be happy to audit if it was too late to register. The university refused to release any of Kate's information, but he kept calling. Kate tried not to let it affect her work. She wanted to feel safe on campus, surrounded by students, professors, and staff, but it was impossible to shake her fears. Paul could be anywhere. In the end, Kate decided to leave the school. She didn't feel comfortable at any job that required her to stick to a predictable routine. If Paul was going to follow her every move, she was determined not to make it easy for him. About two years after the breakup, Kate learned Paul had married the woman he was seeing. But 46-year-old Kate had lost any hope that he'd moved on. If anything, he seemed even more determined to stay in her life. In the fall of 1996, Kate was driving through her neighborhood when she noticed moving vans parked in front of the house at the end of her block. A few days later, when she passed the house, Kate glanced inside one of the windows and noticed a painting hanging on the wall. She recognized it as one from Paul's house. Kate was used to Paul intruding on the fringes of her life, but she was shocked that he would be so brazen as to move to her block. She later wrote, Until now, I've seen this as a sick game, meant more to annoy than frighten me. This latest move changes the face of things. Paul, who lives his dark side in such secrecy, is acting out his obsession overtly. Kate felt she had no choice but to move out of her place. She stayed with a cousin while she figured out her next steps. It was then that she decided it was time to go to the police. Kate was directed to the city's sex crimes unit to file a report against Paul. She told the detectives about everything, their relationship history, Paul's past behavior, and all the strange things that had haunted her since she left. She was worried that the police would doubt her or downplay Paul's crimes, but she was relieved when they took her seriously. In fact, they were concerned that Paul might be even more dangerous than Kate believed. The detectives warned Kate that Paul's goal was to literally drive her insane. He wanted to control her life. It would be easier for him to keep track of her if she were institutionalized. The officers told her they had seen it happen to women before. Kate later wrote that meeting with the police changed her life forever. It was the first time she truly confronted what Paul's actions meant for her future. She could never fully trust anyone or feel safe ever again. Afterward, police opened an investigation into Paul. They ran background checks, interviewed his friends and contacts, and began surveilling him. Despite these efforts, there wasn't much they could do to hold Paul accountable. They brought Paul in for questioning, but he didn't confess to anything. Instead, he claimed that Kate was the one obsessed with him. Although the officers didn't believe him, they couldn't prove he was stalking Kate. All they could verify was that he'd moved into her neighborhood. Paul claimed his new wife had picked the house, not him. One detective who worked on the case said that Paul had every tell of a guilty man but the officer's intuition wasn't enough to justify an arrest. Kate felt helpless. She believed her only option was to travel somewhere far away out of Paul's reach. She was sure he'd try to send someone to follow her, but if she kept moving, she might have a chance at staying ahead of him. Kate prepared to leave the country. She sold her car and set up new private bank accounts, She didn't go anywhere without carrying her passport in case she had to leave in a hurry. She donated most of her possessions. She made quick visits to family members to say her goodbyes. To free herself from fear, she was ready to disappear. Coming up, Kate goes to extreme lengths to escape Paul. Now, back to the story. For more than two years, Kate Brennan was subject to stalking and harassment from her ex-boyfriend, Paul. When he moved into a house on her block, she finally felt threatened enough to go to the police. They took her report seriously, but they didn't have enough evidence to arrest Paul, and they couldn't guarantee Kate's protection. They didn't have the resources to guard her 24 hours a day. Kate decided her best option was to leave the country and hope that Paul wouldn't be able to track her down. She arranged to stay in London. Of course, Paul knew she loved it there, but that's exactly why she chose it as her destination. She hoped he'd think it was too obvious and assume she'd gone elsewhere. Kate was granted permission by the police to travel under an assumed name and coordinated with airline security. After exhaustive preparations, She departed just after Christmas. In London, Kate continued to use a fake name and paid cash everywhere she went. Over the next few weeks, she began to relax. She noticed no signs of Paul. She would have loved to stay forever. But although she continued to work on freelance writing assignments, it wasn't enough to keep her afloat. London was too expensive to hide in forever. In the spring of 1997, Kate was forced to return home. She moved into a friend's house and tried to rebuild her life. In London, Kate had enjoyed a brief respite from worrying about Paul, but back home, she knew she could never let down her guard. One night, she held a writing workshop for local students. During the session, one of the attendees continually asked her intrusive questions about her bank, her insurance company and her lawyer, until she demanded that he leave. After the workshop, when she got to her car, she found it unlocked with the battery dead. Soon after that, she noticed strange cars parking in the street across from her house. Each time the driver stayed in the front seat but never got out. She never saw the same car or the same person waiting there, but there was always someone sitting behind the wheel, watching her. Kate packed up and left yet again. This time she stayed at a cousin's house while they were away on vacation. A few nights after she got there, she heard someone rattling the front doorknob. Kate quickly jumped out of bed and got dressed. She had begun sleeping with her clothes laid out beside her in case she had to flee the house at a moment's notice. But she didn't want to race outside and risk running into the intruder. After she was dressed, the noise stopped for a moment only to resume again at the back door. Kate heard someone clearly traveling around the home, trying to enter through some of the windows as well. Eventually the sound stopped. It seemed the intruder gave up and left. Kate lay awake for the rest of the night. She got up early the next morning and left her cousin's house for good. She spent the day driving around the city, unsure of where to turn. She dreaded going to the police to report the incident. The thought of facing the officers and having more fruitless conversations about Paul gave her a panic attack, but she forced herself to go. Kate briskly walked away from the police station. The meeting had been quick. She had stayed calm as she updated the detectives on everything that had happened in the last few weeks. She was able to hold it together in front of the officers, but as soon as she left, she began to shake she couldn't find her car she felt disoriented her vision blurred as tears filled her eyes while she searched the garage she wanted to give up sit on the cold ground and weep she wished her mind would just go blank until she couldn't feel anything anymore maybe then she could rest instead she kept searching until she finally found her car She jumped behind the wheel and locked all the doors, but she didn't start the ignition. She had no idea where to go or who to turn to. Paul had destroyed it all. Her relationships, friendships, any aspect of her life that required trusting another person. She would never get her life back. It filled her with despair. She knew it was exactly what Paul wanted. After the attempted break-in at her cousin's house, Kate visited her therapist who told her that she was likely suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Stalking can frequently be a trigger for PTSD symptoms. In 2001, clinical psychologist, Dr. Paul M. G. Immolkamp conducted a survey on the effects of stalking. He concluded that stalking contributes to PTSD symptoms above and beyond the effects of other forms of interpersonal violence. About 10% of individuals being stalked have a high PTSD risk. Stalking leads to a substantial number of victims to the disorder, with many re experiencing symptoms and suffering from suicidal thoughts. Psychologist Emma Short published a similar study on cyberstalking in 2015. She found that the prevalence of PTSD is comparable to other specific traumatic events such as sexual assault and combat. Moreover, what is clear is that the victim's reactions are of a negative nature and include fear, depression, stress, anxiety, lowered self-esteem and a loss of trust in other people. Kate felt helpless in her battle against Paul. She thought about filing a restraining order, but she found out that she would have to confront Paul in court in order to succeed. She later wrote, "'That was exactly what Paul wanted an opportunity to force me to spend money on legal fees and defend myself against him. Kate felt it would only bolster his ego. She decided against it. For the rest of the year, Kate bounced from house to house. She alternated among family members going from a sibling's home to her mother's. She started switching up her driving routes when traveling from one place to another, always keeping an eye on the rearview mirror in case anyone was following her. She moved from place to place 16 times in just over a year. Eventually she rented her own apartment just outside the city. She'd always hated the suburbs, but she'd given up on trying to find the ideal place to live. All that mattered was that it would be harder for Paul to find her. Kate used different false names for each account associated with the address. Every bill went to a different alias. She chose a place without windows facing the street. She set up a security system with an alarm. She slept with her cell phone under her pillow in case she needed to call the police in the middle of the night. She tried to take every precaution she could, but she was always reminded that Paul was out there, watching her. His wealth and power was daunting. Kate wrote, he seems to have eyes and hands everywhere to watch me to pick locks and to hack into computers. I wonder how far Paul's arms reach and whose pockets would be immune to his generosity. Despite her worries, Kate enjoyed a few months of peace at her new house. She hoped Paul had finally gotten tired of his obsession with her. Then one day, she came home to find her garage door open when she was sure she had left it closed. She bleakly accepted that Paul's predatory activities had resumed. There was nothing she could do to stop him. At times, she returned home to find her security alarm blaring. On other occasions, her home would lose power for no reason or her phone would stop working. Kate never saw Paul. She never caught him in the act but she was constantly aware of his presence. A little over a year later, her mother became sick and Kate moved back to her hometown to be closer to her. She purchased an isolated lot in the woods and built a townhouse by the lake. Paul's activities finally seemed to dwindle. Kate's mother passed away and for some time, she tried to focus on her grief rather than Paul. In 2007, after more than a decade of harassment, Kate wrote a book about her experiences being stalked. She published her memoir under a pseudonym and changed all the names of the people involved. She didn't want to include any identifying details because the thought of Paul discovering and reading the book scared her. But she wanted her story to help other victims of stalking. She felt empowered by the idea that even after years of terrorizing her, Paul hadn't managed to silence her. She wrote, he may have moved me to the margin of life, but he can't erase my words. However, she was less hopeful that she would ever break free from Paul's grasp. One fall morning, not long after completing her manuscript, Kate's phone line was cut. A technician discovered that it had been reattached to another line. The technician was baffled as to how the mistake could have happened, but Kate knew that Paul had found her yet again. She decided not to run. It seemed pointless to try to escape Paul's provocations. They would continue no matter where she went. She didn't want to put any more time or energy into trying to escape her stalker. In her book's epilogue, Kate insisted that Paul has not won. He hasn't broken her spirit. Still, she maintained a bleak outlook for her future. After her book was published, she gave an interview with the New York Times. She concluded, I don't have any expectation that I would ever in any legal way have any justice. That's not even in the realm of what I think will happen in my life. The only way that I'll know the stalking will stop is if he's dead. Kate Brennan's experience is not unique. According to the CDC, 7.5 million Americans are stalked every year. Approximately 1 in 6 women and 1 in 19 men have experienced stalking at some point in their lifetime. If you or a loved one is experiencing prolonged harassment, resources are available through the Crime Victims Hotline, as well as the Domestic Violence Hotline, 24 hours a day. For more information, call 1-866-689-HELP or one 621 hope Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.